Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Good morning and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul class. And uh, gosh, we're in that season now, approaching the end of the year. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. Happy winter solstice. And uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think Islam really has a holiday around this time of year. But whatever your faith, your religion, your culture, your belief systems, I guess the one thing we all share is solstice. And I think that's the reason a lot of these holidays have been uh, gathered. What's the verb I'm looking for? Uh, Organized around this time of year. Uh, the celebration of uh, a uh, longer day and warmer temperatures. In any event, this is the last class we're going to do for 2022. We will be dark for the next couple of weeks as next Sunday is Christmas and the following Sunday is New Year's Day. So we will reconvene on January 8th of 2023. And uh, I'm excited. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Just as a little aside, not to get too far afield, but I've been watching what seems to me to be the apparent uh, decline of arrogance and narcissism and self-centeredness. And uh, it just... I know it comes in bursts and spurts, and I'm not hoping to see, you know, a quantum leap in the evolution of humanity anytime soon. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to struggle for many decades, hundreds of years perhaps, with avarice and greed and selfishness and the search for a false sense of power, power over domination. But um, this whole right-wing house of cards seems to be collapsing all around us and the arrogance of the billionaire. Uh, For the money that uh, Musk paid for Twitter, we could end world hunger. There was a UN report that for $6 billion a year, we can end world hunger and begin to establish a decentralized approach to farming where local people get access to the land that's been uh, purchased by large corporations. That's the big problem with food. And anybody who thinks, well, a little starvation is good, it controls the population, just the opposite is true. Hunger and starvation exacerbate population. When you see that your children are dying, you have more children. The best form of population control though it seems it is a little counterintuitive, is to feed and educate people. Then they have fewer children. And uh, our priorities are so twisted. 
I bring it up in this class because each of us has an option to reject the popular tendency to view all of these as political, to believe that our solutions are in politics, or even to a lesser degree, social responsibilities. We do have those, but it's individuals that make up society. In democracy, we're supposed to have input, but I think uh, those of us who <laughs> maybe a little more cynical than others or a little more realistic than others see that our government's pretty much bought and paid for both sides of the aisle. So the reason I bring all of this up is I'm really optimistic. It's nothing I'm going to see in my lifetime, but um, the change is a good thing. It's not just change, it's growth. And so I'm very excited and enthusiastic about the new year and the years to come. And, and given how stressful this time of year can be, I hope to share some of that optimism and that enthusiasm with you. Each one of you does make a, a bigger difference than I think you know. And that happens in small ways in our everyday life and affairs. And it's important to vote and write your congressman and letters to the editor and participate in your community, whatever. But just the way we behave in public, the way you drive in traffic, the way you treat a waitress who brings you a plate of poorly prepared food, these are very important ways to make a difference in the world and, of course, in your, in your life as well. Sometimes it seems sort of trite or silly to speak along these lines, but I think somebody has to do it. It's so easy to watch the news and commentary and, and just be terrified, not even appreciate how stressed we are. And, and then we tend to become filled with despair instead of hope. So I wanted to mention that. Also, I have uh, a couple of things for us today. I wanted to do a class on loving kindness. So I'm going to share in our opening meditation a Buddhist sutra that is not very well known outside of Buddhism, but it's a central document that uh, is attributed to Buddha himself. Remember, for hundreds of years, these were oral traditions. And you might say, well, how, how is it that you're celebrating Christmas by reading a, a Buddhist sutra? Well, because I think Christ was a Buddhist. Buddha was a Christian, and I just don't see that much of a difference. And then Taoism is so similar to the two. If you look at it from a mystical point of view, and the Sufi tradition in Islam is so beautiful and so much in harmony with these same principles. And again, you wouldn't know it in America because only the uh, most fundamental uh, aspect of that religion is portrayed. Religion, much like politics, has a orthodox, ultra-conservative, reactionary wing and a more liberal or progressive, which is the mystical those who seek direct knowledge and experience of that which is divine. And so Sufism is that tradition in Islam, just as Kabbalah and the Zohar is in Judaism and Rosicrucianism and there are many, many Christian mystics down through the ages. St. Francis was a mystic. and Some would even argue Thomas Aquinas, Jacob Bohm, Meister Eckhart, 
Chan Van Roysbroek, so many great Christian mystics, even contemporary uh, Father Richard Rohr is a Catholic mystic in uh, living in uh, the uh, Albuquerque area, actually, or just outside there in New Mexico. So uh, I'm going to share that during the meditation, and then when we come out of the meditation, I have a little handout that I put in the newsletter this week. If you haven't downloaded it as a PDF, go to the newsletter that you received yesterday, and you'll see a link right in the middle of the newsletter where you can download that PDF. It's a document I wrote, and it's basically 10 steps for living life more fully. And uh, that's my agenda for the day today and a nice way to uh, conclude the year. Hopefully I can get through all 10. So let's do our opening meditation and then we'll uh, move forward and save at least 20 minutes or maybe a little more for some Q&A at the end. Okay, get comfortable in your chairs. Let's do our opening meditation. Sit up, sit back, center yourself as you close your eyes. Create and sense a feeling of being balanced and centered so that you can become increasingly relaxed, releasing muscular tension, and you don't have to hold yourself. You don't have to use any muscular tension to sit up straight. So shoulders back, head and shoulders, right above the spine, right above the hips. Get a sense of alignment. And just begin to relax. Feel a kind of a melting feeling. And combine that with three or four or more. Nice, slow, deep breaths. Inhaling through the nose. That's important. Hold as you peek. And exhale through the nose or the mouth. Just as slowly until you completely evacuate the lungs all the way out and then cycle around. It's especially on the exhale side that we feel the letting go. Tell yourself internally that you're safe. When you talk to yourself silently and internally, you're talking to the unconscious mind often called the subconscious, and the brain. It's the true identity of the self, your awareness, that is telling your brain and your nervous system and the unconscious mind that you're safe. Safe enough to close your eyes. Safe enough to relax to let go of that readiness, that on-guard, warning, caution, danger ahead. And you say, no, this, I'm in a safe place. This is a safe time. So you're really sending three messages to the brain by closing your eyes with a few slow, deep breaths and a letting go feeling as you exhale. Three messages that say, I'm safe, and this is a good time to relax. Feel the letting go.
And what that does is promote the higher brain functions. We become open and receptive to expanded awareness, or so-called higher consciousness, as we become safer and more relaxed. Sometimes we think of this as concentration or focus, but to be aware of being aware, and then to become aware of being awareness, is more of a feeling than a thought. It's a presence that comes upon you. Where there's less of a need to think. And so the racing thoughts begin to slow. Fewer ideas compete for your attention. And the gaps between the thoughts begin to open. It's not that we use meditation to try to stop thinking, but rather to become aware of it, to release our attachments, the clutching, the grasping, the holding on, as well as the judgments and the labeling. Just let all that go and be not a human doing, but a human being. Exactly the way you feel in the present moment, without judgment. There's no right or wrong way to be. Our thoughts can be right or wrong, and often is not somewhat right and somewhat wrong. We make mistakes. We learn. We become experienced, knowledgeable, and beyond knowledge, expand our ability to understand to recognize and to realize without judgment, without thinking, without labeling. So you don't repress your thoughts or stop thinking. You just let go of the feeling that we have to chase them or follow them. We can watch a thought come and go. the way you might lay in the grass and watch a cloud. And you have no need for the cloud to behave this way or that. There's no sense of this being a good cloud or it could be a better cloud. And for its part, cloud is so free to go wherever the wind moves it. Whatever form it takes. whether it builds or dissipates. And we can be more accepting of just being for 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Being, if nothing else, curious 
about the thoughts that petition us for attention? About the impulses, the deeper animal urges that often pull our awareness in the direction of food or relationships or our lengthy and never completed to-do lists. Give yourself permission to let that all go. And simply enjoy the feeling of being safe and relaxed. The Karaniya Metta Sutra has been passed down for hundreds of years as an oral tradition. And after four or five hundred years, it was written down. And in time, the various versions were consolidated into an agreed-upon form, just like the stories of Christ, who never, like Buddha, never wrote anything down. It was a hundred years later that the first Gospels of Christ were written. So it is with the Buddha Sutra. Metta means loving-kindness. Sutra, in Sanskrit, literally means thread. It's a kind of a prayer, really, and I'll share it with you now, from what's become the agreed-upon version. And it begins with this admonition. This is what should be done. And it continues, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, the living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at peace. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, 
So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from the hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be sublime, abiding, by not holding on to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I'll repeat that last phrase. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. This is the idea of breaking the karmic wheel of reincarnation. That the ultimate happiness, the ultimate liberation, is found in breaking the cycle, not having to come back again and again. As a curious aside, there is something known in most schools of Buddhism, as the uh, vow of the Bodhisattva. Maybe you know the Steely Dan song, Bodhisattva, <laughs> and you've wondered what that's about. The word is used differently by some various sects, but uh, the central definition of the Bodhisattva is one who is willing to return, who, by having transcended his or her desire nature, breaks this karmic wheel of rebirth, but nevertheless vows to return as a kind of a helper. And uh, it's seen, of course, as a great sacrifice. And there are some schools of Buddhism that refer to anyone in the community, in the Sangha, any devoted uh, student, a member of the community as a bodhisattva. But if you ever wondered, maybe you heard the phrase, the vow of the bodhisattva, and you wondered that what, what, what that was about, now you know. Okay, I'm going to do a screen share with this next handout. You can open your eyes wide awake and alert and come back to the waking state. Take a nice, big, deep breath as you return. Stretch a little bit. Still relaxed, bringing with you that expanded awareness, feeling better than before. Again, this is the document that I uh, posted in the newsletter and what you can download from there. It, it's, it's something I wrote earlier this year, 10 Keys to Living More Fully. And again, I'd like to share these with you sort of a Christmas, Hanukkah, solstice gift. Again, this is not, uh, I'm not Moses. This is not, this stuff, <laughs> this stuff is not carved in granite. These are not rules. These are not laws. This is not the enlightened wisdom of a great guru. These are just my efforts to understand myself and my life and 
the virtues to which I aspire, my values, my my ethics, my my goals, really, to understand and incorporate these principles. Actually, I have several documents like this. <laughs> they keep evolving. So let me suggest, first of all, number one, the purpose of life is universal. We talk about the purpose and meaning of life. Some people would say they're the same. I'm going to argue that the purpose of life is universal. We all share a purpose. And that is the evolution of consciousness, unfoldment, growth, learning, and expanding awareness. And to become the embodiment of love, kindness, compassion, intelligence, virtue, and wisdom. So we're all on that same mission. Number two, the meaning of life, I would suggest, is more personal and more subjective. This would be your own adventure of following your love and your logic in service to others. To live through your heart, the will to love. We often hear uh, the Joseph Campbell admonition to follow your bliss. It just means follow your heart, which is, you know, as old as time itself. Follow your heart. I like to say when it comes to identifying ourselves, not just the meaning and purpose, beyond uh, serving other people, we have to know who is this self I call me that is doing the service and what is it that I have to offer? Well, as suggested in the meditation, the central gift that you have to offer is your awareness of self as loving and kind. As I've lived, I've come to see kindness demonstrated, but never taught. It's rare that somebody teaches us to be kind or urges us to be kind. I think our parents expect us to be good, to behave, and to be kind. But it's not really ever taught. And uh, even in my religious education, if you can call it that, which in my case was catechism, kindness was demonstrated by the behavior of Christ. But it was in the context of an angry, wrathful God. And those contradictions, in my mind anyway, let's speak for myself, never really got resolved. It's like, well, Jesus was this very kind, gentle, loving, you know, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, become like little children, blessed are the meek, worry not. But boy, you didn't want to upset the father. He was angry and wrathful. He would smite you strike you down with a lightning bolt or do something horrible to you. A pox on your house, the plague, diseases, locusts, floods and droughts, flooded the whole world, killed everybody but Noah and a handful of others. I, I personally speaking for myself, maybe you experienced some of this contradiction also, but there is Plenty to be said about kindness in all religions. I just think it's really important to emphasize 
that it is a chief quality of love, as is compassion. And uh, I've included here in the first point also love, kindness, compassion, also intelligence, virtue, and wisdom. Faith has to be supplemented with logic. Anybody ever asks you to suspend logic and suspend your intelligence and your reasoning in order to have faith, they misunderstand faith. That would be my argument. Faith should be capitalized as should love. So there's a purpose of life that's universal. The meaning of life is basically to be of service to other people and look the way you feel. My goodness, just look at you want love in your life. You, you want to receive love. You got to give it. <laughs> it's pretty basic law. Give what you wish to receive. What you sow, you shall reap. Take that literally and give away that which you wish to receive. Be generous and kind and people will return that love with generosity and kindness and and all those other qualities of love, beauty and patience and tolerance and a sense of humor, and prosperity and good health. Support that in others. Beware of the I, me, mine. I got an ego. My ego stands up, demands all kinds of stuff. My ego wants it my way, its way. And uh, is freaked out about not having enough power or enough control in the world. My ego has very little faith. So I do my best not to identify with the ego. It's the part of me that rides shotgun. If, if I'm ever in real danger, then that ego will come forward. It'll be there. It'll help you fight or run. But that's its job, like the old Wild West, Wells Fargo stagecoach. You know, one guy drives the stagecoach forward, but the other guy's got the gun. He, he's, he's, he's riding shotgun, right? And his job is not to look forward, but to look around, to have your back, so to speak. That's all the ego is. But like a teenager, it doesn't want to ride shotgun. It wants to drive the car. Understand we each need an ego self. The part that identifies as separate and individual. It's a false self to help us survive the jungle. And we're pretty much there. We've survived the jungle. And I think another way of talking about the meaning of life is to redeem fear and ignorance, so-called evil. That's my definition of evil. Fear and ignorance. And it's a vicious cycle. Ignorance, confusion, uncertainty, unawareness is scary. But those scary feelings, that fear, that anxiety, that stress, that nervousness, that apprehension, that panic, that horror, shatters awareness, makes us more ignorant. Doesn't uh, diminish our intelligence so much as shatters awareness. It's like ignore. Ignorance is ignoring. It doesn't mean you lack the capacity to understand. You lack the willingness to pay attention when we become ignorant due to stress. So fear promotes ignorance and confusion, and that's scary, which creates more confusion or ignorance, more fear and anxiety, more ignorance, more fear, round and round like a tornado. 
That's what evil is. So the, the antidote is love and understanding, right? <laughs> That's what awareness provides. So what if our job is to be unique agents in form? Yeah, agents, that's a pretty good word for it. Liaisons, extensions of fragments, elements of, of the oneness of the universe that express as this uh, multiplicity with a single mission, which is to redeem that fear and ignorance with love and understanding, to answer negativity and hostility with kindness and compassion. And anytime somebody scares you, recognize the fear in them that is promoting their efforts to frighten you and control you because they're afraid. Think of the scariest people you know. Do you not see how terrified they are? Aren't they the people with all the guns? Gun owners deny, of course, that they're afraid, but why else would they have guns? More than two-thirds of American households are unarmed. <laughs> and something like, uh, some outrageous number, what is it, 50% of all weapons are owned by 3% of Americans? I mean, people that own guns, they have guns. They have lots of guns. You know, only use one or two at a time, but they got a closet full of guns. They're terrified. Have some compassion for that fear. You've been there. I've been there. We know how fear feels and what it does to our intelligence. So aside from serving others, consider that that service to others that feels so wonderful, giving what it is you wish to receive, treating others as you would have them treat you, includes using your love and your light your insight and your understanding to redeem that evil, that fear and that ignorance with love and understanding. Again, I would argue the only prayer Christ ever taught refers to bringing heaven to earth. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven, bringing heaven to earth, redeeming this hell that is full of suffering and pain, sickness, disease, injury, animosity, anger, the animal body, redeem the animal body to a human and then to a solar nature, solar, S-O-U-L, that kind of solar nature, the kingdom of conscious souls. I talked about that a few weeks ago. The idea that evolution will continue as we move upward evolving up the pendulum toward the unity of the unmoving still point at the top. Changing our nature, evolving as a result of the works that we do in the world. In the same sense, point number three, you are what you care about. You're not what you think of yourself. I think we all know that we're not what others think of us, though we give that power away. We do sort of spend a lot of time trying to earn the approval and acceptance of other people. It's odd that we look for self-esteem, a healthy self-image, self-confidence, self-regard, self-trust, self-love from others. When the word self is in front of every one of these, it comes from your self, 
self-regard, self-respect, self, all of that is self-imposed. So we're not what others think of us. We know that in our more lucid periods in our lives. But you're also, I would argue, not what you think of yourself. You are instead what you care about. You are what you love. Consider that. Not just now, but later today, tomorrow, a week from now, over these holidays in the next couple of weeks. What if I am not all these busy, busy thoughts? But just what I care about, what, what do I think is important? Why does it matter to me that the world is hungry if there's food in my refrigerator? What do I care? Why do I care? Why, why do, does it concern me that the world is so grossly unjust or unjust? Why do, you, why do you care? Maybe you are what you care about. Maybe you are that caring nature. Conscience, sometimes it's called conscience. We are that love. We do care. It takes a lot of work not to care, to repress that. And then there are the sociopaths and the psychopaths that almost seem to have been born without a caring nature, without a conscience. But the professionals in the field, the psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers say, no, these are people, the sociopaths and the psychopaths, there may be a genetic predisposition, some kind of inherited component, but more often than not, it's nurture rather than nature. It's it's a horrible, horrible, tragic, traumatic upbringing. And having counseled as many people as I have over the years, the horror stories that I've heard of abuse, it's just, just unbelievable. I'm not even going to give voice to it, the stuff I hear. The capacity that we have to be animals, to be cruel. So. This is about the will to love, which uh, I failed to finish point two, the will to love. So then three, you are what you care about. So dream your dreams and follow your heart. Live as if you are a unique treasure to others. Four, consider that life is a gift to be given away. Live it to give it releasing all need for compensation or remuneration? Do you really need appreciation or even acknowledgement when you give something? It's nice. Okay, well, I don't need anything back except to be acknowledged. Well, why do we even need that? Could we give anonymously? Can we be secret givers? Because that's really giving. If we say, well, I don't need, uh, I don't need, to receive anything in kind. In fact, a little appreciation would be nice or some acknowledgement, but I don't really need that. Look at the part of you that does want that, that desires that. Because then it's not really giving. It's sort of a swap. It may be an unequal swap, but if you want anything back, it's just a swap. You're not truly giving. When you give, what you're saying to yourself as the nature of that self-redeems is, this comes not from me so much as through me. 
I give away that which I have received freely. So I give it freely, and thus I enhance the flow. And the more I give without needing anything in return, the more I receive. That's the way the universe works. It's a little tricky. Gratitude expressed as kindness and generosity is a key to a healthy and abundant life. And then I put many candles, one light. Maybe you've heard people uh, uh, expound on this whole concept that a single match or a single candle can light unlimited countless other candles and fill the room with light. It began with just a single candle, and the fire gives of itself. It, uh, <laughs> it, it, it multiplies of itself without being diminished in any way. It's a very divine allegory that the one expresses the multiplicity without being diminished. Number five, of course, there is only one life. It's awareness. It's not your thoughts. It's not the separated self. It's not the ebb and flow of your emotional nature, although that, that's getting a little closer. It's certainly not your physical body or the physical world in which you live. All of that is in decay and, and time passes away. Awareness is love. That's what love is. It's not just an emotional affinity. Baby, I love you. I love my dog. I love my car. That's fine. But that's not consciousness. That's not awareness. When you capitalize love, it's awareness. It's to be sentient, to be conscious, to be responsive, to substitute the selfishness with the generosity that we just discussed. Awareness within which we live, move, and have our being. That's a biblical quotation. It comes from Acts. I don't remember chapter and verse. I don't usually quote chapter and verse, but I know it's in Acts. And what a, what a provocative concept that divine love or awareness is that within which we live and move and have our being. So not only is divinity within us, we are within it. Remember we talked about panentheism, the imminent and transcendent, the one in everything and everything in the one. The universe continuously supports you, me, us, because there is no other. There's nothing that exists that stands outside the, the ultimate divinity or the oneness of the universe. There is no other. There is no other. This is that. We reap what we sow, which is karma. <laughs> and people say, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in karma. Yeah, you do. What do you mean? <laughs> That's some crazy Buddhist Hindu thing, karma. Yeah, well, you reap what you sow. It's all the same. All separation, fear, and evil are illusions, phantasms, and nightmares of our own making. Love means all is one. Tension and resistance impairs and relaxation empowers. 
That's a phrase I've used for years in my seminars. Tension, resistance to anything. Physical tension carried in the body and just a mental, emotional resistance to push away weakens us, scatters awareness, confuses us. Relaxation, letting go, always empowers you. Holding on is the problem. Letting go is the solution. In all things, let go. Here we are holding on for dear life. Stop holding on so tight. What if you let go? I can't let go. Something horrible would happen. Really? Are you sure? No. <laughs> you know, the, the, the roller coaster always comes to my mind where, you know, somebody who's afraid of roller coasters or it's a new roller coaster. They've never been on this death-defying ride. And you're strapped in and safe as could be. I mean, the uh, amusement park wouldn't be uh, open for very long if they were killing people on the roller coaster, right? And so here we hold on for dear life, white-knuckling it, and at the end of the ride, we're sick to our stomach. Get me off this thing. But on the same roller coaster, people are holding their hands in the air and shouting whoopee and having the time of their lives. But it's the same roller coaster. And that's what we do in our lives. Some people are having a great time. They have the same fears, they have the same problems, they have the same sickness, they grieve the same losses, but they're not holding on, you see. And yet that's our immediate reaction. If you've lost something and you're grieving, you want to reach out and hold on to it. That exacerbates the grief. That amplifies the pain. Take a breath, exhale, let go. Everything that is unreal will fade away. And the only thing that's real, which is love and awareness, consciousness, compassion, remains because it's infinite, it's eternal, it's everywhere equally present. Number six, things don't happen to you. This is important, I think. Things do not happen to you. Things happen. And sometimes you get in the way. You become involved, and then you use the language, well, it happened to me. Reflect on that. Stop, the, stop considering that you're a victim of everything. I find personally great freedom in this idea, and I have to remind myself again and again. You get stuck in traffic. It's gridlock. It matters because you're running late for a very important meeting or whatever. And you can feel that tension building and the anxiety, and then it spills over into anger and get out of my way. Get off my freeway. What are you people doing on my freeway? <laughs> uh, I certainly know that feeling. But it didn't happen to me. That was my illusion, my delusion that I'm a victim of a life that's happening spontaneously all around me. It's easier to see in nature than on the freeway or in the cities. You go into nature, it's easier to see that that which is happening around you is not happening to you. It's just happening, and you happen to be there, that's all. So uh, 
things happen, but consider dropping that to me. I think a lot of us fear we'll have nothing to talk about if we give up victimization. How much of our small talk is uh, a competition to see who's suffering more? Oh, that's horrible, but, but that's nothing compared to the misery in my life. Let me tell you what happened to me the other day. And we compete to see who's more miserable, who's more of a helpless victim, who has no power, no control, and moreover, no responsibility for anything. Oh, I can do you one better than that. Let me tell you about what so-and-so did to me. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said, Small minds talk about other people. Those with moderate intelligence and awareness talk about events and circumstances. The great minds of women and men talk about ideas. I like that. When you're in small talk with your friends, are you talking about grand ideas, concepts, lofty, goals and dreams, or simply events, or gossiping about people. So what we make of what happens to us, our emotional attitudes and our judgmental beliefs, mirror us as conditions arise and fall, ebb and flow like the weather. Just stuff happens, right? You can count on it. Stuff happens. And as those conditions rise and fall within you and without you, trust the loving guidance of life's gentle hand. Trust life. Those two words, you you could put those on your refrigerator with a magnet. Trust life. And you can say it in a lot of different ways. Trust God. Trust love. Or just trust. And that's scary. But the benefits of learning to trust, again, with love and passion, but also with reason and logic. We don't want to be reckless about the affairs of man. Trust the universe and and the laws of the universe. Laws like karma. Laws like reincarnation. Laws about making things better. Just being of service, helping out, being kind, responding to evil and negativity with something positive. Trust that whole process. Believe in it. See what happens. That's why gratitude is so important. It's an affirmation that the universe is just. Point seven, only the present moment is real. We've talked about this a lot. The past and the future are merely images in your mind. Right? They're figments of our imagination. So if you keep telling an old story about your past, you are recreating and affirming that that story will extend through the present and into the future because you keep telling that story. Everywhere you go, you carry that story with you. And don't misunderstand me. We can learn from the past, but then let it go. And then maybe you find, well, there was something more to learn from our past. Well, then revisit that recollection from the present, it is in your mind as an image, as a set of feelings, as a belief system, 
revisit it, learn what there is to learn. That's the antidote to all fear, to all ignorance, to everything that's so-called evil, to the shadow is the light. That's the antidote. Understanding drives it out. Love is understanding, drives out evil. And then let it go. Write a new story. When you talk to people about your life, drop the victimness and the reasons for it and move forward. Begin to live in the past. Then you create that. You see, it's all in your head. The fragrance of a flower is in your head. It's not out there. <laughs> if the tree falls in the forest and there is no one there to hear it, it does not make a sound. That's no question about that. Going back to philosophy 101 in school. Only the present is real. The past and future are images. They're figments of our imagination. Your point of power is now. The only thing that's real is right now. This moment unfolds. And with every breath, life is new. Life is fresh. Like a brand new baby. Like a, what do they call A colt. A brand new horse prancing in the field in the springtime. You see baby animals that are so excited to be alive. They're just bursting at the seams with this enthusiasm for life. That is in every moment of your life and mine. That newness, that freshness of each moment. Take a breath. New again. Let it go. Breathe in life. You see, breathe out the appearance of permanence. Identifying that everything is impermanent, but here comes another breath. It's cyclic too. Around and around in the present moment. Point eight. Acceptance means to acknowledge reality without judgment. Before deciding whether to reconcile or refine a condition or just let it be. Acceptance is not surrender. Acceptance is not the end of things. It is the beginning. So accepting just means, hey, it is what it is. This is reality. Get used to it. It won't last long. If it's good, it'll fade. If it's horrible, it'll improve. It's law. You can, you know, that present moment has a yin and a yang. That present moment has an in-breath and an out-breath. That present moment has a waxing and a waning. It has a season to everything. There is a season. Turn, turn, turn. Ancient wisdom. Accept. Acceptance is a way to begin to release our desire nature and our need perpetually to want things to be different than they are and to fight and struggle for our right to reject reality and live in a fantasy world. That is the source of all suffering. Point nine, all here it is, all happiness and suffering are born of and live in the mind. Therefore, everything is possible, good and bad. Focus on your aspirations rather than on that which you wish to avoid. That's pretty obvious, right? If you focus on the problem, you're going to keep making the same problem. It will persist. If you focus on the solution, you bring it about. 
again, if you keep telling the story about the problem, you recreate the problem. When you tell the story about the solution <laughs> and what's happening and where we're going and how it's getting better and how the universe supports you and it's healing and it's growing and that's what it does, then you're going to promote that. And 10, all forms are impermanent. Things, objects, thoughts, thought forms, thoughts are forms. They're separated things, right? Emotions are separated. They're forms. Just like physical things that decay and rust and rot, so too our thoughts and feelings are in decay. Nothing lasts. Everything passes, save for love as awareness itself. So all these objects, these physical objects, these thought forms, our emotional forms, are inherently mortal. They are born, they live, and they die. Brahma, Vishnu, Shivu. Birth, sustaining, and death, or dissolving. Dissolution, yeah. And uh, only undifferentiated consciousness or love or awareness is eternal, unchanging, and self-shining. Undifferentiated consciousness is a term I don't use much, but I like it. It's not mine. It's uh, often used to refer to the wholeness or the oneness of things. <laughs>